Good morning. My name is Mario, and I'm the other pastor here, and I'm glad that you're with us. I'm going to pray real quick, and then I'll get started. God, thank you so much for your word. I pray that your truth would go out this morning, and that you would do I don't that, that spiritual thing that I think we are unable to do without you, where your word makes a difference in our life. And so I ask that that would happen. In Jesus' name I pray. Amen. All right, so today we continue on in our series through the book of Proverbs called Way of Wisdom. This is Way of Wisdom part 15, and today is somewhat of a momentous occasion because we have made our way all the way to Proverbs chapter 10. And Proverbs chapter 10, like in the book of Proverbs, there is a drastic change in style in the book of Proverbs when you get to chapter 10. The first nine chapters of Proverbs are extended speeches where the father is giving wisdom to the son and he talks about the same topic for several verses in a row for the most, of the, most of the time. And then when you get to chapter 10, that all changes. Starting in chapter 10, the Proverbs move to single sentences that are unrelated most of the time to the sentence that comes before them or the sentence that comes after them. You have a collection of sentences that are a little bit like fortune cookie fortunes that start at chapter 10. Um, and you, if you've ever eaten a Chinese restaurant and you've eaten a fortune cookie, you know, you open it up, it comes out. The thing is not a fortune, like most of the time. Rarely do they ever say, like, you're going to get a new car tomorrow. Like, they don't, it's not a fortune. A lot of times it's a Chinese proverb, right? Like a little pithy statement about something. And so there's a sense in which, starting with chapter 10, you're going to see these little pithy statements in the book of Proverbs that are like that, except they are not Chinese, they are Jewish, and they are part of God's word. But there is um, this big style change in Proverbs, right when you, get to, when you move from chapter 9 to chapter 10. Therefore, there will be a change in the preaching style here starting now. Um, we will no longer be taking whole chapters at a time like we have been for the first nine chapters of Proverbs. Because if we just continued what we've been doing, right, where we just take whole chapters at a time, if we continue to do that after Proverbs chapter 10, we will be having these like 18-point sermons and 25-point sermons that are on all these different unrelated topics. And we're not doing that. So, starting today, we're going to um, start addressing different Proverbs that are all over the book of Proverbs, by, and by, we're going to collect them by topic. Okay, so for, from now until we get to the last two chapters of Proverbs, and this is, I guess, a little spoiler alert thing, that um, when you get to the last two chapters of Proverbs, chapter 30 and 31, it kind of goes back to the style of the first nine chapters. But from 10 to 29, the middle of Proverbs, that big chunk, there are all of these single sentences. And so we'll be collecting various Proverbs from that section that are on similar topics, and we'll be preaching on them each week over the summer. And today is the first one of those, the first time we're actually getting into the Proverbs themselves. And today's topic is family relationships. That's our topic, family relationships. And so what I did uh, this past week is I collected up a bunch of Proverbs that are about family. I think it was 27 of them. And I just typed them all up into one document so that I could see them together, like isolated from all the other Proverbs that they're normally found in. So I could just read just the Proverbs on family all in one place. So I typed them all up, read them, and tried to discern if there were any recurring themes in the family Proverbs, and there were a few that stuck out to me, but one stuck out to me more so than the others. And so I took the 12 passages that fit with that theme, and that's my text for this morning. Those Proverbs are what I'm going to teach you this morning. However, before we jump right on into that, before we jump into the thing that stuck out to me, and before we jump into the 12 Proverbs that we're going to cover, I'd like to first kind of lay a foundation 
and give you an introduction to the Christian worldview on family relationships. Before we jump into Proverbs, just more generally, what does the Bible teach? What has God said when it comes to just generally speaking, what's the Christian worldview of family relationships? We'll do that first and then go into Proverbs. And so I'll start with marriage. There's a pastor in New York City named Tim Keller that I like a lot, um, and he was a pastor in Manhattan for a long time. And he said that he would, um, a question that he would get asked over and over and over again from people, um, and you know, I'm, I'm sure that each person worded it a little differently, but basically he said there was the same question over and over again. He said, I think he was talking about like young couples who were not married to each other, but were, I assume they were living together. So they're living together, they're not married, and they would come up to him and they would ask him the same question over and over again. It would be worded like this. Why do I need a piece of paper to love someone? Why do I need a piece of paper, referring to a marriage license, why do I need a piece of paper in order to love someone? And his response to them, well, first of all, I think the first thing he said to them was, you don't need a piece of paper to love someone. But then the other thing he said, and I thought this was interesting, he said in almost every culture, or maybe he said every culture, in every culture across the world, a wedding is not a declaration of your love for the person, it is a promise of future love for the person. He said wedding, and this is not just an American thing, he said weddings all over the world, in all different cultures, they are not declarations of present love. They are promises of future love. That's what a wedding is, and I think he's right. I think we've forgotten that that's what marriage is about. And one reason I think we've forgotten it is because that, that idea that, um, that somehow a wedding is, is built upon a, a a declaration of our present love, not a lifelong pledge of love. I see it on TV all the time. I can't stand TV weddings. They're so terrible, especially sitcoms. I guess I don't watch enough dramas to know what, how they portray weddings on those shows. But on sitcoms, they're awful. And I'm going to point it out to you so that you hate it every time you see it too. <laughs> but if you ever watch a sitcom, when the two people, like whenever there's a wedding on a, on a TV show, like a sitcom, um, wherever it happens, whether it's in some chapel in Vegas or some church somewhere or somebody's backyard and there's somebody officiating, maybe another character on a show, maybe a priest that hasn't been on the show the whole time but suddenly is there for that episode. But whatever it is, they have the wedding and then the two people, why is this like right in my way? Just notice that. Sorry, Kenan, I'm going to have to do something. We can fix it later, but I need some room. Um, <laughs> Whenever you're watching a sitcom and you, the two people are getting married, um, th they always come together at whatever the place is, and they always write their own vows. Okay, I, I don't know if I've ever heard the traditional wedding vows on a sitcom ever. They always write their own vows, and I'm putting quotes around the word vows, because they're never vows. They never are actually promising anything. Almost every time I watch a, a TV show wedding, the two people get together wherever they are, and they declare their present love for each other. And then somebody declares them husband and wife, and then the credits roll, and we're supposed to be happy and go on with whatever we do after the show. Marriages are not to be built upon the declaration of present love, but on a promise of lifelong love. That's what a wedding is in every culture is. That's what marriage is. That's the Christian worldview on marriage. And in fact, that's the context for sexuality. The context for sexuality is a relationship not of present love, but of pledged lifelong love. I don't know if you know that, but that's huge, and that's very different than what our culture teaches. But in the Christian worldview, that's what sex is for. You're not supposed to share your sexuality. You're not supposed to have sex with just someone that you presently love, 
That's not the point. It's the person that you've pledged to love forever. That's what sexuality's for, which makes sense, because sexuality is this kind of permanizing thing. Like when you have sex with somebody, and for those of you that have, you know this, it's this bonding thing. It's sort of like glue for a relationship. Um, I think sex unites people probably in numerous ways. One way is that it produces children, okay? And this was something that was much more obvious to people when they thought about it for all of history up until about 70 years ago. Okay, once birth control was invented, it was very easy for us to start thinking of childbearing and sexuality as two different things. But for all of human history, it was, very, it was very obvious to everybody that if you chose to have sex with somebody, you were also risking having a child with that person. And then that kind of unites the two of you because now you're parents to the same being. But even if you take the fact that sex unites people by children out, I think there's just something about it. And maybe this is alluded to in 1 Corinthians 6 when it talks about people being united when they, when they have sex with one another. Um, but there's something about it, maybe emotionally or psychologically or spiritually, that it just it unites people like relationship glue in such a way that you're, just, you're sharing something with this person that you don't share with most other people, so it brings you together in a way. And it makes sense that God would design it for the relationships that are permanent, Right? That he gives these people who, not people who have declared their present love, but people who have pledged lifelong love, that he would give to them this tool that sort of helps permanize their relationship, which is supposed to be a permanent one. It, it, it totally makes sense. And yet we live in a culture that takes this thing that is sort of permanizing and glue and, and kind of causes union, and we separate it from lifelong pledges of love. And you have these people coming together and ripping apart and coming together and ripping apart, and I'm convinced it's terrible for a culture. I'm sure that that's terrible for a culture. It's not the way it's supposed to be. And so I think the Christian view of like marriage and sexuality and family is when, when two people pledge lifelong love to one another and share sexual intimacy, those two people become like a new unit that didn't exist before. That's the biblical worldview, and I want to show it to you in the Bible. Matthew chapter 19 verses 5 and 6. It says this, in Matthew chapter 19, verses 5 and 6, it says, And he also said, For this reason a man will leave his father and mother and be joined to his wife, and the two will become one flesh. So they are no longer two, but one flesh. Therefore, what God has put together, man must not separate. Um, so, by the way, the question mark there is not, the two will become one flesh, like that he wasn't sure. Earlier he had said, haven't you read this? And so it's in the form of a question. The he there is Jesus. So what you have in this verse, and this is a fantastic little paragraph, it's a twofer, if you didn't know. It's a twofer because this is Jesus Christ speaking. So we've got Jesus Christ, Son of God, God in a body, showed up and he said this to us. But he's quoting from Genesis chapter 2. So we got the Old Testament and the New Testament all together in one paragraph. We have Jesus Christ quoting Genesis. So he says, For this reason a man will leave his father and mother and be joined to his wife, and the two will become one flesh. Now that's the end of the quote. That's where Genesis stops. Then Jesus adds his own words, So they are no longer two, but one flesh. Therefore what God has joined together, man must not separate. So you see as Jesus teaches, and he's consistent with the Old Testament because he's quoting it, there's two individuals... And then in some sense, those two individuals cease to be two and become one. 
And then they combine to make this new unit, right? So now you have this declaration, not declaration of present love, but you have this, this lifelong pledge and this sexual intimacy that causes what was once two to become one new unit. And that combination produces more people, right? Which is sort of weird. And again, that would have been something that would have been very obvious to everyone in all of human history until about 70 years ago. Right? That, there, that if the two people combine and share sexuality, there is a high chance that they are going to create more humans from the combination. Are you following me? Okay, so which obviously one of each sex is in view here. So in some ways you could say now you've got two people who've become this one unit or this one team, and then as a part of their teaming up, they create more people, and those more people, the new people that exist, in a sense, be automatically become part of the team, at least temporarily, until they go and start their own teams. Right? You, have this, you have two that have become one unit, then they make more people within the unit that join the unit at least temporarily until they go off and start their own families, right? leave their mother and father and be joined to their wife. Therefore, when we think of humanity and the way God has designed us, humans are not simply individual people who are disconnected from other people. We do not reproduce asexually like funguses, or fungi, okay? We do not reproduce um, asexually like, like bacteria do. Right? I think with a bacteria, they just, they multiply. They don't, a bacteria doesn't have to go find Mrs. Bacteria and do a little something to make more. Like literally one can just replicate and make more. Humans aren't like that. And humans, when they do replicate, the, the, the new one that comes out does not come out fully formed and independent from its source. Right? Which again, different than bacterium. I, bacteria, I don't think they, like, there's no mommy bacteria that like, trains up her little bacteria to be good little bacteria so that they're all ready to go and you know, make people sick or whatever it is that bacteria do. Okay? They don't do that. They just come out as one and they're ready to go. That's not how God designed humanity. We are not disconnected from other people as we make more people and as the more people come out, they are not fully formed and independent. Therefore, and I'm trying to give you just this general, before we jump into Proverbs, this general Christian worldview on family. God designed human beings to create collections of people called families that do not relate to one another in the same way that some other group of unrelated individuals would be of the same number. Right? So if you have a family of six people over here, they relate to one another and have obligations to one another differently than just any other group of random six people. Are you following me? Now, some of you might hear that and you might go like, uh, duh, like that was so basic, Mario. And if that's you, I would say, well, good for you. I am so glad that was basic for you. I think that that is becoming less and less duh in our culture as we have separated love, sex, and children from permanent lifelong unions. And so that then brings me to what jumped out to me in the book of Proverbs. So with all that in mind, thank you. We move to the book of Proverbs. As I read the multiple Proverbs on the topic of family, one recurring theme that stuck out to me, the first thing that really stuck out to me that I wrote down in my notes is this. Your life is not disconnected from your family. Your life is not disconnected from your family. Families are units with obligations to one another, and you cannot treat yourself as if you are a disconnected individual. So let me go ahead and start with Proverbs chapter 2. This is fairly early on. We already learned this. I'm going to just do it real quick, and then we'll jump to the new Proverbs. Proverbs chapter 2, starting in verse 16. 
says this. It says, it will rescue you from a forbidden woman, from a stranger with her flattering talk, who abandons the companion of her youth and forgets the covenant of her God. Now, the it there is wisdom, or whatever synonym for wisdom was being used in the sentence before. Wisdom and discretion and knowledge were being talked about. And then it says, it, this discretion, this wisdom, will rescue you from a forbidden woman. Now, how is she described? I want you to notice two things about her. First of all, she is someone who abandons the companion of her youth. This word companion can mean like the primary one. Okay, the, like the best friend is one way that it could be translated. Okay, this is the person that was like her primary partner and she abandoned this person. There's, a, there's an assumption here that there was an obligation between her and him that's being broken. And then you see the next thing it says, not only does she abandon the companion of her youth, but she forgets the covenant of her God. Now, what does that mean to forget the covenant of your God? And I looked it up in um, like a commentary, and you can look this up. I don't think it's clear for sure what it is. It could mean either the covenant of marriage, the covenant that she made, her marriage covenant that she made before God um, to be with this man for her whole life, or it could just mean the general covenant of God, like the covenant that God made with the people of Israel, like on Mount Sinai, Ten Commandments, thou shalt not commit adultery, that that would be the covenant of God. So, but either way, whether it's the covenant that God has with his people, or specifically a marriage covenant, you can see there's an obligation that's assumed here that she has abandoned and forgotten. So now we move on to the actual Proverbs in chapter 10. In fact, um, I'm going to go to chapter 10, verse 1. This is literally the next verse that comes right after the verses that Doug preached last week. Okay, so Doug, remember he preached verses, uh, chapters 8 and 9, and we said, woo, we finished chapter 9. So now we move on to chapter 10, and this is literally Proverbs 10, verse 1. This is the first proverb of the one-sentence Proverbs. This is the first proverb. Proverbs 10, 1. In fact, that's why there's a little uh, Solomon's Proverbs. Here they begin. A wise son brings joy to his father, but a foolish son heartache to his mother. That's the first proverb. A wise son brings joy to his father, but a foolish son heartache to his mother. I think it's obvious here that it's saying when you choose the way of wisdom, typically it will bring joy to your father. But for you to choose the way of foolishness, it will break your mom's heart. And you may say, but I'm my own person. What I do shouldn't matter to them. And you can say that all you want and it will not change a thing. You will affect them. Your choices will affect them. Your foolishness will bring heartache into the lives of people other than you. Let's go to the next proverb, Proverbs 13, 22. This is another family proverb. It says, a good man leaves an inheritance to his grandchildren, but the sinner's wealth is stored up for the righteous. So we see that a good man here in Israel leaves this inheritance for his grandchildren. In this context, I think the inheritance was probably the family farm or the family business. So in Israel, you would have however it is that you survived. So you farm or you're the town blacksmith or whatever you are, and that's how you survive. And then your kids would follow up in your footsteps. People didn't go off to college back then. So when the father lived his life and how he survived, and then he dies, and then that farm goes to his children, okay? Or the blacksmith shop goes to his children or whatever it may be. And then that goes to their children. You know, and you just, you kind of did what your dad did most of the time. And that's how you made it. So you see here that a good man leaves an inheritance to his grandchildren. He has this way of making a living and then he passes this on. But I want you to notice the idea is that someone should live a good life and then it will affect 
two generations later. Do you see that? Your life isn't just about you. This proverb assumes that you live the life you're supposed to live and it will affect two generations of people later. And then the second half is, but the sinner's wealth is stored up for the righteous, right? That sometimes God causes sinful wealth to be redirected to other families. Now, I think this verse focuses on like financial inheritance, but Proverbs also talks about like the spiritual inheritance that we can pass on to our kids. And I want to show you that as well. Proverbs 14, verse 26. You affect the people who come after you. Proverbs 14, 26 says, In the fear of the Lord, one has strong confidence. That's what you'd think the Bible would say, right? In the fear of the Lord, one has strong confidence. And then look what else. And his children have a refuge. Whose children have a refuge? The one who fears the Lord. Now, what does it mean to fear the Lord? We've already talked about this earlier in Proverbs. So if you want a long treatment of it, you can go back to the earlier sermons. Um, But just quickly, I'll just let you know the word fear and Lord here. The word fear does not mean necessarily like be terrorized by, like God is awful. It's a word that's sort of similar to the word worship, that when someone fears the Lord, that means they obey the Lord, they submit to the Lord, they love the Lord, they're allegiant to the Lord, they revere the Lord, they worship the Lord. And then the word Lord here is not the generic word for God. It is specifically Yahweh, the God of the Old Testament, the God of Israel, the God of the Bible. So this is not be scared of deities. This is worship the specific God of the Old and New Testament. So in the worship of God, you have strong confidence and your children have a refuge. I just want you to notice, who you worship affects your children. Look at Proverbs 20, verse 7. It says, the one who lives with integrity is righteous. Here it is again. His children who come after him will be happy. The one who lives with integrity is righteous. His children who come after them would be happy. That could also be translated blessed. His children will be blessed. That one of the types of inheritance that you can leave to your children is a life of integrity. And in the life of integrity, there's a blessing that comes to your children who come after you. So again, I'm just trying to point out your spiritual life is not only about you. It's about those who come after you. Here's another proverb, Proverbs 19, verse 13. A foolish son is his father's ruin, and a wife's nagging is an endless dripping. Mmm, do not put that on a Mother's Day card. (laughs) But I want you to notice that the family members affect each other. Children affect their parents. Children's choices can cause disaster for their parents. And spouses affect the people they're married to. The wife's nagging in this verse is an endless dripping. An endless dripping to who? I don't think it's her. It's not that it's endless dripping on her. She's ruining someone else's life, isn't she? The wife's nagging is an endless dripping to him. And so again, being a good family member isn't just about you. You are connected to others. Now, there are also several proverbs about parents' obligation to children, right? So there's children that can affect their parents, but parents very much can affect their children. And one of the things that's assumed in the book of Proverbs, that is not often assumed in our culture, but one of the things that's assumed in Proverbs is that children cannot just be left alone to figure things out for themselves. 
when it comes to values, when it comes to morality, when it comes to how it is that we're supposed to live on this earth, children cannot be left alone to figure out things for themselves. Look at Proverbs 29, verse 15. It says, A rod of correction imparts wisdom, but a youth... Now, what's the next three words? Left to himself is a disgrace to his mother. So a rod of correction, that is like physical punishment, right? They're saying imparts wisdom. That can cause someone to become wiser. But when a child is left to himself, let them go their own way. Let them figure it out themselves. Let them go on their own. When they are left unattended, when they are left unsupervised, when they are left unparented, what happens? That's a dis- that's, that person's going to be a disgrace to their mother. Proverbs teaches that kids are not naturally pointed in the right direction. Okay? Left to themselves, they will go the wrong way, and parents are given to children in order to counteract that which is natural in a child. And you'll see this is not just this one proverb. There's multiple proverbs that assume this. The Bible assumes this. But look at Proverbs 22.15. Proverbs 22.15 says, Foolishness is tangled up in the heart of a youth. The rod of discipline will drive it away from him. I want you to notice the assumption here is that kids are not naturally wise. They are not. Foolishness is what's tangled up in their heart. What comes in a kid's heart naturally? Foolishness is all tangled up in there. And remember in Proverbs, I've said this, I don't know how many times now, there's an overlap between foolishness and sinfulness, right? So this is not just saying silliness is in the life of a kid. No, this is, in other parts of the Bible, you know, would give us this idea that kids naturally are born with a sin nature. They are bent toward going the opposite of God's ways, not going towards God's ways. That's what this means here. Foolishness is tangled up in the heart of a youth. The rod of discipline will drive it away from him. There's sinfulness that's in their heart. There's, there's not going God's way. That's in the, like the propensity to do that is in their heart, and parents have to change that with discipline. Now, the ultimate solution to the foolishness and sinfulness that's in the human heart is regeneration. Like by the time you get to the New Testament, we see God coming into someone's life and changing their heart is the ultimate solution. But that's not what Proverbs is talking about in this verse. I think this verse is just letting us know children are missing something important in their natural state and parents are able to provide something to make up for that discipline. That is that they will naturally go in the wrong direction so there will be punishment for wrong to push them toward the right direction. Um, And if you're someone who goes, yeah, I don't know about that, especially rods, and is that abuse? And I'm not even talking anything about abusing kids. What we're saying is there is a short-term pain that you can cause now that will prevent long-term harm later. And the long-term harm is very important to understand because sometimes we may hear the word foolishness and we might go like, well, what's the big deal if my kid's foolish? Maybe I, maybe I want a foolish kid. But you've got to remember earlier in the book of Proverbs, foolishness is a way bigger deal in Proverbs than it is in like modern day English. Remember Proverbs chapter 2 when we preached through it? The title of the sermon was, Foolishness Will Destroy You. And I named it that way I named it that sermon that way because that's a summary of what Proverbs chapter 2 says. In fact, Proverbs 1 through 9 says that over and over again, right? Foolishness is this thing that's not just like, oh, get rid of it if you can. No, it's really bad. It'll destroy your life. You will get to the end of life and you will look back and you will regret it and you will say, why didn't I listen to my teachers? And why didn't I listen to wisdom? Multiple times it says you keep going down that path and it will lead you to Sheol, the, role of the, ro- the, the realm of the dead, like over and over again. 
Proverbs is saying, don't go down the path to Sheol. Don't go back down the path of destruction. So when this is saying, hey, foolishness is tangled up in the heart of a youth and you want to drive it away from him, it's not just saying this is no big deal. It's saying there is destruction that they are naturally headed for. That's the thing that you are correcting. Now, the Bible talks about parenting, obviously, but in Proverbs it also talks about how spouses affect family. And women and wives, in particular, are brought up several times. We've talked about how Proverbs was maybe written more so to young men than anybody else, and maybe that's a reason why. But, but women and wives are talked about throughout the book of Proverbs. Um, I'll show you one of them. Proverbs 14, verse 1. It says, Every wise woman builds her house, but a foolish one tears it down with her own hands. Every wise woman builds her house, but a foolish one tears it down with her own hands. I do not think that this proverb is likely to be about the actual structure, like the building of her house. Like, I doubt this is referring to, I, I doubt that this is saying every wise woman is a contractor. Every wise woman is a construction worker. She builds houses, right? She builds a house. And then a foolish one rips down walls and knocks out drywall, rips down the, the roof. I don't think that this is talking about the physical structure. I think this is talking about her household. That every wise woman builds up her family and a foolish woman tears that family down. Wives and mothers can lift up their families or they can destroy them. And you might say, well, what about men? I assume this is true of husbands as well, okay? I, believe, I also believe every wise man builds his house, but a foolish man tears down his house with his own hands. I think that's true too. This is written in the feminine. I think it applies to men. Now, did they need to say it? to men back at Proverbs. I don't even know. Maybe, perhaps it was a given. 3,000 years ago in ancient Israelite culture, the, the, the man of the house who was the provider and the protector and the head of the household, it was probably obvious that wisdom is what would break his house to be great, and if he was foolish, he would tear his house down. That was probably a given. This verse is saying it's true of the women in the house also. And notice it's wisdom that leads to building up a family or building up a household and it's foolishness that leads to tearing a family apart. Now look at this next one, Proverbs 12, verse 4. A capable wife is her husband's crown, but a wife who causes shame is like rottenness in his bones. Wives have a huge influence on the shame or the honor of their husbands. And I use the word honor because that's what I think this is about. It says her husband's crown. That's not literally. She's not literally his crown on top of his head. I think that's talking about the honor that comes to him versus the shame that comes to him based on different behavior. Wives have such a huge influence on the shame and honor of their husbands. And I think Proverbs like this were probably written for a reason. Again, Proverbs maybe was primarily written to young men. And so you may wonder, why was something like this composed? Why did this proverb come into being? A capable wife is her husband's crown, but a wife who causes shame is like rottenness in his bones. It may very well have been to say to young men, hey, be careful who you marry. Be so careful who you marry because she has the ability to lift you up or absolutely sabotage you. It reminds me of a story that I heard one time. This is a story about the, this is a story about the mayor of New York City back in the 90s. Um, the mayor of New York City back in the 90s was uh, David Dinkins was his name. Okay? And so supposedly this is a conversation that he had with his wife. So mayor of New York City is there with his wife and Mayor Dinkins says, see that man over there digging the ditch? 
I remember that you dated him once. If you'd married him, you'd be the wife of a ditch digger. And Mrs. Dinkins says back, no, if I'd married him, he would be the mayor of New York City. <laughs> I love that story. Now, it's not a true story. You can Google it. It has been credited to Michelle Obama, Laura Bush. There's a bunch of celebrity women that that story's been credited to. I doubt any of them said it, but I think it's fantastic, and I think it's really important for us husbands to think that through. You go, oh, I think I did that. You don't, you don't even know how different your life would be if she were different. Okay, two more Proverbs. Now we're going to go back to kids and their responsibility to their parents. Look at Proverbs 20, verse 20. Whoever curses his father or mother, his lamp will go out in deep darkness. Whoever curses his father or mother, his lamp will go out in deep darkness. This proverb fits with Old Testament laws, like honor your father and mother, but this one's put in the negative rather than honor. It's saying don't curse them, don't curse your father or mother. So to dishonor your parents is to harm yourself. And, it, and that's obviously what his lamp will go out in deep darkness means. That's something negative. I don't know exactly what it means. It could refer to the death penalty because in ancient Israel, to curse your mother and father is something that they, would, they said, put them to death if they cursed their mother and father. There was some sort of dishonor in Israelite culture that was at a point that capital punishment was used. And maybe that's what this is saying. Hey, don't curse your father and mother. They'll kill you. Or maybe it's supposed to be more poetic than that. But clearly there's harm that is assumed to come upon you for the dishonor of your parents. Here's another one from Proverbs chapter 23, starting in verse 22. It says, listen to your father who gave you life. This is Proverbs 23, verse 22. Listen to your father who gave you life and don't despise your mother when she is old. Buy and do not sell truth, wisdom, instruction, and understanding. The father of a righteous son will rejoice greatly and one who fathers a wise son will delight in him. Let your father and mother have joy. And let her who gave birth to you rejoice. I want you to notice, it says to listen to your father. It says, don't despise your mother when she is old. I think this is a hint for us. And you can tell that the position of the Bible um, here, and I think especially in Mark chapter 7, based on something Jesus said, is that honoring your mother and your father, but specifically mother here, honoring your mother is something that extends into adulthood, even past the period of time where you're supposed to obey your parents. The obligation to honor your parents extends into adulthood after the time where you're supposed to obey them. If you go to the New Testament, you'll see that there's a verse in Ephesians that says children are supposed to obey their parents, right? So the idea that you've got to obey your parents is given specifically to children. But then you have honor your parents that was not specifically given to children. Honor your father and mother is in the Ten Commandments. The Ten Commandments weren't given to kids. It was given to the entire nation of Israel. So honor your father and mother continues into adulthood, even after the obedience time is done. You see that children have a role to play in listening to, their, to the wisdom that comes from their parents. And, and generally speaking, if your parents fear the Lord, I know that's not everybody, but if your parents fear the Lord, you'd want to live a life that makes them happy. Like kids should want to live a life that makes God-fearing parents happy. And so like I said at the beginning... One thing that stuck out to me as I looked at these family proverbs is how much your life is not disconnected from your family, how much you can't just go, I'm my own person, I'm my own individual, and it's nobody else's business what I do. And now what I want to do is I want to end this sermon, and I hope this is helpful. I'd like to end this sermon with a little teaching and a little um, encouragement for single people. 
I want to talk to those of you who are single. I want to talk to those of you who are single Christians. I got this idea from Tim Keller, the guy I quoted earlier in the sermon. He did a sermon uh, kind of like this one, and he uh, talked to the single people in his congregation, and he said something similar. I'm going to say it in my own words, but something similar to what I'm about to say to you, and I think this is real helpful. If you're here this morning and you are single, and you are someone who goes like, thanks, Mario, good sermon, but... Like sometimes I show up at church on Sundays like this and it just feels a little wah-wah because I don't have a husband or I don't have a wife or I don't have kids. And whenever there's sermons on, you know, series on marriage or a series on parenting, I always just sit there and feel like, ah, this doesn't have anything to do with my life. And so I want to address those of you who are single and specifically those of you who are single who think that you won't ever get married. Because there may be some of you here that, you know, you're like, whatever, 20 and you're engaged. And, and if that's the case, I'm not necessarily talking to you. But I especially want to speak to those of you who are single, but you're, you're 35 years old, you're 45 years old, you're 65 years old, and you think, I just think it's not in the cards for me. And so I want to address you quickly, and then I'll address everybody else. I think there might be times in your life where you could be tempted to be bitter toward God because you believe that he has withheld something from you that he seems to not have withheld from most other people. If you're here and you're a single Christian who thinks, I don't think I'm ever going to get married, you could think, God, why have you withheld from me something that it seems like you have not withheld from most people? And so what I wanted to say to you is this. I want to say, if you are a believer in Jesus Christ, you will participate in the best marriage ever. I don't know if you know that. You will participate in the best marriage ever one day. Let's just say that earthly marriage is the second best thing there is. Okay, which I know anybody here that's like in a difficult marriage would argue with that, okay? But just for sake, let's just say, what if earthly marriage was the second best relational blessing that God has given to humans, okay? Well, let's just imagine that, even though I know some of you go, nah, but let's just imagine, what if a good, godly, healthy marriage was the, is the second best blessing relationally that God gives to humans, if that's true, this is what I want to tell you, then you... If you're a believer in Jesus Christ, you are not missing out on the best thing, okay? Even if you think God has withheld from you the second best thing, I want you to know he has not withheld from you the best thing. Jesus died on the cross for your sins so that you could partake in the best relationship of all time, and sometimes in the Bible, it is referred to like a marriage. And I just want to show you this real quick. I want to read you some passages that show you this, and then we'll be done. Ephesians 5, 25 through 27 says, Husbands, love your wives, now this is interesting, just as Christ loved the church and gave himself for her to make her holy, cleansing her with the washing of water by the word. He did this to present the church to himself in splendor without spot or wrinkle or anything like that, but holy and blameless. That Jesus' love for his people is compared to marital love and it even seems like it's talking about a bride being presented to a groom. Like this seems to be marriage imagery when it talks about how Christ loves his people. Look at 2 Corinthians chapter 11, verse 2. This is a really interesting verse. It says, this is Paul speaking to a group of Christians. He says, for I am jealous over you with a godly jealousy because I have promised you in what? In marriage to one what? To one husband to present you as a pure virgin to Christ. The Apostle Paul is talking to this group of Christians and he seems to have thought of his role in their life, the, like the, what he was doing as an evangelist and as a pastor, 
was he was causing these people who were Gentiles, who worshipped other gods, to turn from their gods, to turn to Jesus Christ as their God. They're worshipping Jesus, they're honoring him with their lives, and he saw that as his role in preparing a bride to meet her husband, Jesus. Revelation chapter 19, verses 6 through 9 says this, Then I heard something like the voice of a vast multitude, like the sound of cascading waters, like the rumbling of loud thunder, saying, Hallelujah, because our Lord God, the Almighty, has begun to reign. Now look at this. Let us be glad, rejoice, and give him glory. Because what? Because the marriage of the Lamb has come. In Revelation, the Lamb is Jesus. Because the marriage of Jesus, the marriage of the Lamb has come, and his wife has prepared herself. She was given fine linen to wear, bright and pure. What is this linen? Who's it on? For the fine linen represents the righteous acts of the saints, God's people. And then he said to me, write, those invited to the marriage feast of the Lamb are fortunate. He also said to me, these words of God are true. Revelation chapter 21, verses 1 and 2 says this, Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth, for the first heaven and the first earth had passed away, and the sea no longer existed. This is talking about the future, right? This has not happened yet. And I also saw the holy city, New Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared like a what? Like a bride adorned for her husband. And then just a few verses later, same chapter, Revelation 21, 9, Then one of the seven angels, who had held the seven bowls filled with the seven last plagues, came and spoke with me. Come, I will show you the bride the wife of the Lamb. He then carried me away in the Spirit to a great and high mountain and showed me the holy city Jerusalem coming out of heaven from God. I will be honest with you. I don't even think that I understand what all of that fully means. And if you're here and you're a Christian and you're a guy, I can imagine you might even be like, ooh, the idea of being Jesus' wife seems weird. And so let me just remind you, it's not you as an individual being Jesus' wife, okay? It's you are a part of the church, and the church is the bride of Christ. And I read these passages to let you know that the ultimate marriage, the ultimate family relationship is still to come. Whatever it is, it's better than what we have here. God's not withholding the best from you. And that's true for all of you, not just single people. If you are here and you are happily single, or you are unhappily single, or you are happily married, or you are unhappily married. I wanted to end this by informing you or reminding you, whatever the case may be, that if you are a follower of Jesus Christ, Jesus died for your sins so that you could have the greatest relational gift that there ever will be. Let's pray. God, this is such good news. Thank you for the privilege of getting to say this out loud to a bunch of people. This is great. Thank you that I get to tell people who think, well, what if I never get married? I get to tell them, if you believe in Jesus, the ultimate marriage is still to come. The greatest relationship is not held back from you. Or if there's somebody in this room who's in a terrible marriage, and they go, how am I going to stick this through? The ultimate marriage is still to come. There's light at the end of the tunnel. You're not holding back on us. Maybe there are some of us who go, well, I really like my marriage. Well, then, wow. Can't even imagine what it's going to be like one day when we spend eternity with you. So the gospel is so good. Your grace is so good. And you give me the privilege, I don't know why, of getting to tell a bunch of people all the time. And so I just thank you. What a great Sunday. What a privilege it is to be able to get to say this. 
And I pray that you would make us into people who take this seriously and live in light of eternity. And I pray that we would be people who look at the wisdom of Proverbs and apply it to our lives. That we would start being kids who honor their parents, that we would be start being parents who parent their children in the Lord, that we would be a spouse that loves and cares for their spouse and is not a nagging and is not a dripping but is a, a delight to live with, that we would submit well or lead our homes well or follow our parents' lead well or whatever it may be, but I just pray you would help us to, to live within the design of family that you have created and within the wisdom that you have revealed to us. I pray that you would do that through us and that we would be, do our part You're a great God. In Jesus' name I pray. Amen.